So open God's Word back up to Psalm 29. This is a beautiful psalm, and it's, uh, it's very timely, I think. You've heard nothing all week but uh, updates and whatnot about storms, so it, it will be good and timely for us to think about a storm this morning. We have our storms, and King David wrote this psalm, Psalm 29, and he had a storm that he was actually watching it formed out across the Mediterranean, and it swept over the land of Israel. It started up north in the cedars of Lebanon, that ancient grove of cedars, and it swept down through uh, the mountains, Mount Ermon, and it swept through the wilderness and stripped the forest bare, and it was an incredible thing to behold. And so we're going to look at what David learned in this, and there's actually, there's actually three points in this psalm that I want us to see, and we can... I'm trying to do PowerPoint better. Man, have we ever had a better screen than this to do PowerPoint on, huh? This is like 1080 or 4K or something, right? So can we put the points up real quick, Kurt? For the, this is the outline. If, if you're looking for something to hang your thoughts on, this is the outline we're going to follow. Three things that we're going to see about God's power as we look at this psalm and we consider even the storm that we saw this week. First of all, we're called to consider God's power. Secondly, we are called to confess God's power. And the last thing is we're called to experience God's power. So let's talk about considering his power. See, the thing about this storm is that God is not hiding his power. It's not a secret. God wants everyone to know who he is, what he's like, what he does. He wants us to see his providence. He wants us to see his sovereignty. That's a 25 cent theological word that means um, in control of all things. There's nothing outside of God's absolute control, right? He sits enthroned over the flood, over the storm. He rides the storm, the psalmist says. So we're going to see that. Um, God's not hiding that. In fact, did you know at any given moment on planet Earth, there are 2,000 storms raging somewhere? Doesn't that humble you and shrink you down a little bit to know? We're, we're all obsessed with Irma, but if you consider globally every, all the weather systems, the patterns, the organized tropical storms, there are over 2,000 that have formed on the planet at any given moment. You know how many that is in one year? 16 million. There's 2,000 per day, I guess, that form. That's 16 million storms. So just, this is just a little microcosm, okay? David is just giving us a little bitty window. We're just looking through a hole in the wall at David's storm, and we're going to learn some things about his power there. So David takes a storm, and he lets it guide him into a reflection of God's power, and we can do the same thing as we think about our storm. So Hurricane Irma, I don't know how big the storm was that David looked at and watched and observed and reflected on, um, but I bet you that it wasn't as big as Hurricane Irma. Do you guys know how massive this storm was in sheer size? Did you know it was as big as the state of Texas? Check this out. Look at that. My wife's from Texas, and uh, Texas is massive, isn't it? And this storm was over 400 miles wide. That's Huge. That's a big storm, isn't it? Okay, you can, you, you can change it now. 400 miles wide, and did you know that Hurricane Irma remained a hurricane status for 12 days? 12 days. In fact, Hurricane Irma broke all kinds of records. Now look, I'm not celebrating the damage here. I'm not. I'm doing what David calls us to do, and I'm considering God's power is reflected in a massive storm like this. Irma broke all kinds of records. Let me, let me mention a few to you. Number one, the size, obviously, okay? One of the biggest storms ever. Secondly, it was the longest lasting hurricane ever recorded. It remained a status for 12 days. David's storm comes, sweeps down over Israel, and it's gone. 
This is, was, was a 12-day storm. And honestly, you know what? We have the blessing, actually, of technology uh, because if you walk outside and just look with your naked eye, you couldn't see Hurricane Irma until late on what? Sunday, right? But with technology, we can watch it develop. We can watch it organize. We can watch it gain strength when it gets in the warm waters. We see the pattern. We see God's finger moving at the trajectory and all the models that were wrong, right? They didn't know where this thing was going, but God knew. And this, this storm had a bit in its mouth. And the reins were in the hand of God, and he was directing it, channeling it, driving it wherever he wanted it to go. And we could see this thing way before, you know, our naked eye could. We could see it on Mike's weather page or whatever .com you went to, weather.com, to check it out. But it's, this storm broke this record. It sustained up to 185-mile-per-hour winds for 37 hours. 37 hours, man. That's pretty incredible when you think about it, isn't it? And there were gusts of up to 218 mile per hour winds. You guys look like you're so tired of hearing about hurricanes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but listen, let's do what God called us to do. Let's consider his power reflected in that. Listen, 218 mile per hour winds. I grew up in Arkansas. It's not quite Tornado Valley, but every year we had dozens of tornadoes. I watched one uproot a tree and stick it in the ground upside down. I watched it through the, through the window in my living room one night. It's flash, lightning flashes. I could see something going on. But do you know 218 mile per hour wind? That's like a tornado. And this is like a 400 mile wide tornado. That's pretty massive, isn't it? So it broke, it broke speed records. It broke size record. It broke duration records. This is what one website said. Irma generated, quote, the most accumulated energy in a 24 hour period on record ever. That's a power that tops all the first eight named storms of the 2017 season, including Harvey combined. All the energy that all those first eight storms uh, garnered and produced were nothing compared to, to Irma. It was just off the charts. It was so powerful, this storm was, and intense, that it actually confused some, some seismographic equipment that was used to measure earthquakes. They thought that this hurricane was actually an earthquake. Isn't that interesting? Um, so we, it's hard for us to imagine something more destructive than a hurricane like this. Did you know that this hurricane leveled some of the islands that it encountered? I mean, absolutely wiped them off the face of the map. It forced millions of people to evacuate. It caused massive flooding everywhere, displaced people. They lost their property. They lost their homes. At last tally, Hurricane Irma took the lives of 70 people. 33 of those people lived in Florida, Georgia, and... South Carolina, and estimates, here's another record, estimates of the economic cost from Hurricane Irma, guess, guess how much they're at right now? Just throw a number out there, $100 billion, $100 billion, yeah, that's pretty crazy, that's staggering. It's caused sinkholes to open up, produce tornadoes, but if you think that Florida got hit bad, listen to this, okay? There's a Caribbean island named Barbuda, and it suffered complete damage. The Barbuda ambassador told the USA newspaper, quote, for the first time in three centuries, there's not a single living person on the island of Barbuda. A civilization that has existed for over 300 years has now been extinguished. And he went on to say this, Irma was the most ferocious, cruel, and merciless storm in this island's history. It was a huge monster. The island and the people on the island had absolutely no chance. 
The hurricane, when it hit that island, was 378 miles wide and was a Category 5 when it descended. And the land that it hit there was just 62 square miles. So you can imagine, 378 mile storm descending on a 62 square foot island. 60, that didn't sound right, 62 square feet. Anyway, disregard that figure. It was a small island, okay, and it got messed up pretty bad. So um, let's look at the text here. That was our storm that we're considering, and David considered his storm. And let's look at the, uh, the, the havoc that it wreaked. I'm going to jump in this at verse 3, okay? This is what's called a theophany, all right? That's an appearance of God in nature. And David is likening the thunder and the lightning and the rain to the voice of God. The voice of God just echoing, just pounding. Listen to this, verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. And Syrian, that's another name for one of the mountains in Israel, Mount Hermon. And Syrian like a young wild ox. And let's just stop there for a minute. So one of the things that this massive storm did that David was watching as it swept out, you can put a slide up here, Kurt. Israel is small, and in the sea, the only ocean really they knew was the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see a picture of it there. He would have been probably, David was probably, in his palace in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the highest city in Israel. So he had this strategic vantage point to watch this storm form out into the Mediterranean, and he probably watched it sweep out over the ocean, and it gained strength as it got near the land. And then the first place that it hit was all the way up north in Israel, and that's a place called Lebanon. Now, whenever David mentions the cedars of Lebanon, you have to think like a Jew would think, okay? The cedars of Lebanon was, it was just a symbol. It was a symbol of strength. It was a symbol of majesty. It was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of something that was so stable, so secure, so anchored, so permanent that nothing could ever touch it. And listen, Everyone in this room has a symbol like that in your mind and in your life. The thing that you're banking on, the thing that you're tethering your life to, the thing that you're hitching uh, your weightiness to. Everyone has something like that, right? And if it's outside of God, it's vulnerable. That's what this is teaching us, really. When we're considering, that's the first point, when we consider the power of the storm, what are some things that David shows us? Just two quick things here, okay? First, it's, it's, it's unstoppable. It's unstoppable. The power of God is absolutely unstoppable okay have any of you ever walked outside your bedroom door after you watch weather.com hurricane coming walked out on the front porch and pointed up at the sky and said stop <laughs> stop it go away shoot get out of here rebuke the wind rebuke the waves i actually read a report only in florida guys okay i actually read a report that the officials in the state of florida were warning citizens to stop firing their weapons up at hurricane irma no joke. I can just see it. Maybe somebody was about six beers deep into losing their power and they'd had enough. And they go outside with their shotgun and they start pumping lead up at the hurricane. But you know, that's a dangerous thing to do because what goes up must come down. Maybe they were shooting a bow and arrow. I don't know. But they said, stop firing your weapon at Hurricane Irma. It's not going to affect it, okay? And we all feel that to some extent, don't we? Anger. It's like, what is going on? I don't want that storm to come here. Did you watch all the patterns, the cones, the trajectories? Were you a little bit on edge? It's like, what is God doing? What is going on here? This is my city, and here's the eye of the storm sweeping right up here. 
But this is, this is the power of God is unstoppable. There's nothing you can do to stop it. You know, you can beg a storm to go away. It's not going to listen. It's not going to hear you. And listen, one of the symbols that David uses to show us, not just to tell us, but there's visual in this psalm. He wants to show you. This is how unstoppable God's power is. A cedar of Lebanon, do you know they were legendary? Those things could grow to a width of up to 40 feet. We have, do we have a slide on that, I think, Kurt? Yeah, that's, that's an, you can go back. You can go back. That's a, you see above, that's Mount Hermon, up north, up north in Israel. And below that, now that's not the same cedars of Lebanon that David saw thousands of years ago. Those things are gone. They only live about four to 500 years, and they would have been much bigger than this grove of cedars. But it's, it's the same place. There would be a grove of cedar trees there, and from his palace in Jerusalem, he would watch that storm come off the Mediterranean Sea, sweep down into the cedar grove, and absolutely wreak havoc. So these 40-foot wide, hey, go, go to the next slide if, you, if you, we have it. Yeah, that's how tall some of those cedars were. The next one? Yeah, there we go. So imagine the, the, the symbol in your mind that's the most anchored, stable, solid, permanent. It's like, if I can just tether myself to this, I'm good to go, right? We all have something like that. And with David and all the Jews, if you were to ask him, hey, what's a symbol of permanence and strength and stability? They'd say, oh, that's easy. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon or maybe Mount Ermin, right? In fact, Solomon used cedars to build his palace because those things, number one, they resist rot. That's why you see a lot of houses built with cedar. You don't have to paint them. Insects won't eat cedar, and it doesn't rot. It's one of the most resilient woods you can use. Just a tip for you, if you want to build something, that's why saunas are made out of cedar. Moisture doesn't hurt them. It's, it's the most powerful wood in the world. And so the tree, when the roots are still in the ground, it ain't going nowhere. And David watches this storm come off the Mediterranean, swoop down over the ancient grove, the cedars of Lebanon, and it mangles those trees. It mangles them. And David, what does he do? Does he fret? Does he despair? He says, what an awesome God we serve, that his power is absolutely unstoppable. There's nothing you can do to resist it. It's unstoppable. These, these were legendary trees. They grew to be 12 stories tall. That's 120 feet, guys, 120 feet. That's pretty amazing. Um, so the cedars of Lebanon, and I would ask you this, what is your symbol? What's the thing that you're tethering your life to? Everybody in here has something. You're banking on this. It's like, I know everything's going to go well for me, and I'm never going to be rattled. I'm never going to be uh, unraveled. I'm, there's never going to be any instability in my life because of fill in the blank. That's your cedars of Lebanon. And I'm telling you, God may bring a storm into your life. Sometimes he does to reveal how fragile the things are that we're trusting in. Sometimes he does it to test our faith. Sometimes he does it to show us that he's the only thing that we can anchor our life to. But God's storms in providential uh, life, they're unstoppable. There's nothing, nothing we can do. So what is it? Is it wealth? Is it your retirement? Your 401k? Is it your connectedness? Is it your personality? You're able to manipulate people and control people? Is it your family name? Is it your health? We all have something that we trust in, and we're banking on that, and then a storm comes. And we see, you know what, I have absolutely tethered my life to the wrong thing. I don't know about you guys, but when I was watching this storm on the news and I saw it's pretty inevitable it's going to get us, right? To some degree, we're all, we're all in this thing. Uh, I boarded up what windows I could because plywood was pretty scarce. Um, and I remember from Hurricane Matthew last year, somebody in our neighborhood lost a trampoline. 
And I'm sure somebody gained one. <laughs> In fact, there was a, wasn't, honey, you told me this, wasn't there a picture online and it had a, after the storm, it was a picture of this nice trampoline in somebody's backyard and it said, thank you, Irma. Because <laughs> I guess before they didn't have a trampoline and after they had one, right? Got to make sure you put your uh, collar on those trampolines so that people can return them. But we have a trampoline in our yard. Our kids love it and it's heavy. Um, and I said, you know what? I don't want to lose this thing. Neither do I want it to be a projectile missile for our neighborhood and land up in somebody's window. So um, I took some, some rope, and I, I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I tied knots that I don't think Samson can untie. I, put, I wedged my trampoline between two queen palms, and I tied it off, and then I'm walking away, and I'm reminded. I looked at one of those palm trees, and from Hurricane Matthew, it was leaning at a 45-degree angle on the other side of our yard, and I thought, man, you know what? I'm tying this trampoline to something that's not impervious to the power of God. I mean, the, the thing that you attach your life to, uh, your life is only as strong as the thing that you're attaching it to, right? It's only as solid as whatever you're tethering it to, just like your car seat. There's some car seats, man, they tether it to the, to, it's actually to the metal, to the frame of your car. Uh, wherever the car goes, the car seat and the kid in it is going to go with it, right? So that's the picture there. That's the picture. And these storms, they're humbling, aren't they? To know that God's power is unstoppable and that's reflected in a storm, it's humbling because, listen, our bare, naked human condition is revealed and exposed. We're very fragile. You know, we don't like to think this way, but we're all snowflakes at some level, right? We're all fragile and we're vulnerable. We don't like to confess that. We don't like to admit that. You know, one of these 12-step programs, uh, there was a man that was the leader of one and, and he was fond of saying this. He said it like this. We shall find no enduring strength until we first admit complete defeat. And listen, outside of God, guys, we're vulnerable. We don't have any power. We don't have any lasting stability or permanence. We're just like those cedars. We may look impressive. We may tower above other human beings. But if we're tethering our life to something outside of God, the storm will come. And we can become mangled and toothpicked, splintered. Just like those cedars, I watched a YouTube video a couple of months ago, and it was a, the biggest bolt of lightning I've ever seen, and it hit a, a, a power pole. Now, I don't know if you guys know this. Those power poles, the thing the power lines are on, they dip those in diesel fuel. There's gravel in them. There's tar in them. Don't ever use a saw to cut one of those. It'll ruin your blade. But this lightning bolt hit this thing, and they did it in slow motion, and it splintered into a million pieces. And I just thought, man, that's not even a hurricane. That's just a bolt of lightning, the power the energy from that thing is just able to shatter whatever it touches. And that's true. That's why the first two steps in one of those recovering programs, it's this. Step one, we admit that we are powerless over our problem, that our lives are unmanageable. And step two, we believe that only a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Isn't that true? I mean, that almost sounds Christian, doesn't it? It is. It is in a way. We take that to the Bible and say, Lord, we're helpless. Lord, we, we're, we're restless until we find our rest in Thee. Uh, our, you're our only fortress. You're our only rock. You're the only thing that's, that's stable in our life. I think this physical storm that David saw is just a metaphor for the insecurity of life and how tremendously small and impotent we are without God. Now, the next thing that David sees is this storm. It moves over the mountain. It says Sirion, but that's just an ancient Phoenician name for Mount Hermon. Can we, can we pull that slide up? Have you ever seen Mount Hermon? It's, it's gorgeous, isn't it? Look at that. So here David is. He is in his palace. He's watching this storm. It splinters the cedars of Lebanon. It moves out over the water. It starts shaking. Look at this. Let me read this. 
and starts shaking the mountain. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. Now think of this mountain. That's the biggest mountain they had in Israel. You're watching this storm. You're thinking, man, it got the cedars. Well, there's always a mountain. That thing's impervious. That thing is secure. Nothing can ever happen to a mountain. And he watched this he watches what the storm does this mountain and makes it shake. It makes it quake. It must have been some kind of storm. Maybe it was an earthquake combined with a hurricane. I'm not sure. Uh, but think of the most secure thing that you can think of. When we lived in California, Sarah and I, this is a true story. The first night we ever spent in California. Jeff, you were there too. It was the, the Californian Hotel. Uh, not the Hotel Californian, but the Californian <laughs> Hotel. was the name. Actually, that's where we lived for four and a half years. Uh, the very first night there, it was about three in the morning. And I, my, my bed was shaking. And I woke up and I said, man, my first night in California and I'm stinking getting robbed. Because my bed was right next to the window and I, it, it felt like somebody had came through the window and was jumping on my bed. That's exactly the feeling. I'd never felt anything like that in all my life. Living in Florida and living in Arkansas, nothing like it. And so I jumped up and I turned the light on and the room was moving and the bed was shaking. And I'm thinking, okay, a demon got it. What, what's going on here? And I hear voices, and I look outside, and there's a swimming pool in the courtyard, and the water is going swish, swish, back and forth. And then Jeff runs out. Our fam all the families of, of that unit came out, and there's mountains all around there. I mean, think of the most secure thing that you, that you can. You don't want to be up in a tree. You don't want to be on a highway. You don't want to be under something towering. Uh, you want to be on a mountain, right? That's pretty secure. When an earthquake comes or a violent storm comes, even those things are up for grabs, right? That's what David is saying. Look, the power of God is unstoppable. There's nothing you can do to stop it. There's no place that you can seek refuge if God wills that storm to come. So those are the first things. Um, the mountains are quaking, and here's the next thing, okay? Not only is the power of God unstoppable, but it's also inescapable. It's also inescapable. Let me read this next verse. Because if you're like me, you're like, you know what? Forget the mountains. Forget the cedars. Um, maybe when Hurricane Irma came and you saw the path and you said, you know what, it's time to evacuate. It's time to get out of Dodge, right? People saw that it was coming up the East Coast, and where did they go? They went to the West Coast first. They went to the West Coast, and then the models changed, right? And then what did they do? They came back over to the East Coast, and then they saw that the storm was 400 miles wide, and then what did they do? They went north, and then what happened? It went north, and so people just pulled over on 95 after they ran out of gas and sucked their thumb and curled up in a fetal position. Because look, the power of God's inescapable. There's nowhere you can go to get away from it, right? And, and David demonstrates this because check this out. Check this out. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. See, up north was the cedars of Lebanon and Mount Hermon. The Mediterranean Sea was over to the, uh, to the west, and this storm starts there. It sweeps up, and it sweeps down, and listen, it goes all the way down into the wilderness called uh, Barnea Kadesh, or Kadesh Barnea. Some of you have been to Israel probably. Cliff, you've been there. You guys have probably seen that. That's an area It's just a vast wasteland. There's nothing out there. There's just scrubs and some plateaus. It's dry. It's arid. There's wild animals out there. So you would think, you know what? I can flee there in this, in this storm. I'm safe from it. I'm secure. And David is saying, no, there's, there's nowhere that you can go to escape or to flee from the power of God. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. 
There's no refuge. There's no safety from it. It's everywhere. Whether you're in the cedars of Lebanon, you're on top of Mount Hermon, or you're down in the wilderness area. And then the next thing that, that David says is even in the forest down south, it strips the forest bare. Look at this. I was driving around in Deland the other day after this storm hit, and I was reminded that that, that is the first thing that drove my mind to, to this psalm after the storm. I saw Deland, and it absolutely was devastated. Some of the tree lines hanging out over property, they were just splintered. It looked like toothpicks. There's nowhere that you can go uh, to escape this storm. That's true. And I go back to what I said earlier. There's, there's always something bigger, something stronger than what we believe we're banking our life on, right? My son's favorite movie, Jackson, you're in here somewhere. Jackson's favorite movie is Jurassic World. I think I've seen that movie 500 times. I don't think I ever want to see it again. But Jackson knows every scene. He knows every dialogue. And our favorite part is at the very end of the movie, if you know the movie, uh, there's this cooked-up dinosaur they made in a lab, right? It's got all these different traits. It's got part snake, part raptor, part whatever. T-Rex, thank you. Yeah, somebody else. Another, another Jurassic World fan. And they cook this dinosaur up in the lab, and it's killing everybody, right? So there's only one thing that can stop it, the original T-Rex. So they go, and they unleash the T-Rex, and there's this epic battle, epic battle at the very end of the movie, right? And, and T-Rex is not faring well. Indominus is tearing him up until Indominus Rex backs up against the very uh, back of the park where there's a big water containing another beast. And out of nowhere, uh, this Mosasaurus comes up and, and just absolutely swallows and drags into the, uh, into the lake uh, Indominus Rex. Because listen, there's always a bigger dinosaur, right? There's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger storm. And if you're not tethering your life to the power of God, then, then you're not safe. There's no refuge there. That's what... I think David is after here. He's teaching us that we consider the power of God. We see that it's unstoppable. We see that it's inescapable. There's nowhere that you can go to get away from it. And then really, a, a third thing I could say about God's power, it's incontestable. You know, people who comment on this psalm, they say that David probably was familiar with other writings of the, of the ancient Near East and you know, they worshiped false gods. All around the children of Israel were pagan religions, and they worshiped the god of Baal. He was the storm god. They worshiped uh, gods of the valleys, gods of the mountains, and all those gods competed for, for supremacy with one another. And here David is saying, look, it's Yahweh. It's the god of Israel. He's the god of the water. He's the god of the mountain. He's the god of the forest. He's the god of the wilderness. He's inescapably supreme. His, his authority is unrivaled. You know, you've heard when a boxing champion is introduced, what do they say? Introducing so-and-so, the heavyweight champion of the world, undisputed, indisputed, right? And we see this in this psalm, that God's power, it's unrivaled, it's unchallenged. You can't fight it, you can't stop it, you can't flee from it, you can't run away from it, right? So that's one of the things that we see in this psalm, is that David is pointing out, he wants us to consider God's power, those things about God's power. And here's the second thing David is after. He wants us to confess God's power. What's the only thing you can do when you see these things? I mean, David wasn't up in his palace checking Mike's weather page, fretting, going back and forth. What is he doing? He's worshiping. He is worshiping God. In fact, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Check this out. The call to worship in these two verses, verse 1 and 2, chimes in with the loud pealing thunder, which is the church bell of the universe, ringing kings and angels and all the sons of earth to their devotions. I love how the Bible, listen guys, all of the Bible is telling us 
God gives us whispers of his power everywhere. You don't have to wait till you see a storm. You can see it in an animal. You can see it in a mountain goat. You can see it in an ant in the book of Proverbs. You see it everywhere you look. Storms, tragedies, disasters, earthquakes. God wants to be known. He doesn't want to hide his power. He wants us to see it, and you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to confess it, to acknowledge it. Check this out, verse 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. That means give. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. David says, this storm makes me consider the power of God so I can confess it and say, God, I feel small. I feel small when I see this storm. I feel weak, but I know the one who is strong. I I feel vulnerable, but I know the one who is not vulnerable. I know the one who protects me and who watches over me. And he, he ascribes worship to God and he confesses. You're my maker. You're my father. You're my God. You're my creator. And I bow the knee to you. In fact, look what it says down here in verse... Look at verse 6. No, excuse me. Look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. That's how startling this thunder was, you know? Premature birth from an animal in the, in, the, in the wilderness or in the forest. It strips the forest bare, and look at this. And in his temple all cry glory. You know that word glory? Jeff explained this a few Sundays ago. It means weightiness. It means heavy. It's how you measure somebody's worth. And we see a storm like this, like Irma, or we see a storm like David is considering here, and it makes us cry out and say, God, you are glorious. You're weighty. You're heavy, and I need you. I want to tether my life to that, to the God who controls that, to the God who created that storm and rides that storm and guides that storm. I want to belong to him. I want to belong to that God. So that's the other thing is that we consider the storm, we consider the power, we confess the power, and listen, that leads to the best part, and we're going to camp out here for the, for the rest of the short time we have. If that scares you, seeing this power, and it should, in fact, I want to be completely honest with you. Do you know what I think David had in mind when he wrote this psalm? We don't talk about this a whole lot at Grace Life until we come to it in a text. I think David had in mind the power that he saw displayed and demonstrated in this storm reminded him of God's judgment. It got really quiet in here, didn't it? We don't talk about that a whole lot. God is a God of justice, and that means he's absolutely holy, and we're we're sinners, right? We break God's law. We're transgressors. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all all of us sought after our our own way. We have rejected God. We've neglected God. We're born uh, with our face away from God and our feet running away from him as fast as we can. And the Bible says that because God is holy and because he's good, he judges sin and he judges sinners who haven't trusted Christ. And the reason I think that about this psalm is because one of the last verses here, look at this. The Lord, excuse me, man, I keep looking at at Psalm 28. Look at verse 10. This is the conclusion. After this storm had passed and ran its course and went back out to the sea or fizzled out, Of course, what are you always left with when there's heavy thunderstorms? Water everywhere, flooding, heavy flooded, heavy flooding. Look what David says. He says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And that, verse 10, should be in the past tense. In Hebrew, it's a past tense verb. I think this storm prompted David to remember another storm, a much bigger storm than the one that he witnessed. And listen, a much bigger storm than the one that we witnessed this week. 
I think this prompted him to remember the worldwide flood, a global catastrophe unlike anything we have ever seen. And David is saying, the Lord sat enthroned during the flood. The earth was shaking, but God wasn't shaking. He was sitting with a scepter in his hand on his throne, ruling over that flood, which was judgment on mankind for their sin. And look what else David says here. The Lord sat enthroned during, over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. And so if you just were to stop right there and we're tempted to, we're like, oh, that's a great song. God's powerful and he judges sinners. And man, you better watch out. We would be absolutely hopeless if this psalm stopped there. We would. But guys, I want to show you something. I want you to leave with good news. Look at the very last verse here. Look at verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Do you know what the very last word in this psalm is? I mean, you've seen cedars splintering, getting mangled, forests getting stripped bare, deers getting startled and giving premature birth, mountains quaking, lightning flashing. The whole world is in a, in a tumult. And what's the very last word that we're left with? Even in Hebrew, the very last word in this psalm, you know what it is? It's peace. You know what the Hebrew word for peace is? Shalom. It means absolute strength and rest and prosperity spiritually. It means that your life is not a bunch of threads that just come unraveled. It means that there's cohesiveness, there's order, there's completeness, there's strength, there's duration. There's something that your life is anchored to. That's what it means. And you have to ask yourself this question. What is God saying here? Well, he's saying this. Not only should we consider God's power, not only should we confess God's power, get this, guys, be blown away with this. Buckle your seatbelts, okay? God also wants you to experience his power. Did you know that? You're watching this storm. You're seeing what it's able to do. You're seeing the power and the majesty and the glory represented in it. And you know what the message is, the, the takeaway message? Not that God is going to judge sinners. You know what the message is? God wants to give you this power. Now, that may sound like something that somebody that owns a bunch of jets is telling you on a religious TV channel. That's not what I'm talking about. God's going to give you this power to make all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God wants to share his power. But listen, it's a power far greater than the power represented in this storm. That's just a small whisper, a little window. In fact, do you know, do you know the illustration that the Bible uses in the New Testament every time it talks about the power that God uses to save us? and to sanctify us, and to change us into the image of Jesus. Do you know what the, what the metaphor is or what the illustration is? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. See, we think of a hurricane or a storm, we think death. Destroys things, kills things, uproots trees, shakes mountains, takes people's lives, sweeps people away in a deluge of water and flood. But when Paul is talking about the salvific power of God, you know what he says? He said it's the same power that God used to raise his son Jesus from the dead. It's, it's a power that gives life, not takes life. It's a power that revives and restores and refreshes and changes. It's not a power that takes away and robs and deprives. That's amazing. That's the kind of power, I believe, that David is thinking about. He is looking forward to what Jesus would do. Because you look at the raw power demonstrated in the storm, and you see the offer of peace, and you've got to scratch your head and say, what in the world? How can a God that we can't reckon with, like, I mean, at the cedars, of Lebanon don't stand a chance and the mountains don't stand a chance in the path of this storm, how in the world can we have peace? Now, what's the answer to that? See, I could apply the message of what Jesus did to this storm. God's power and God's wrath is unstoppable and it's inescapable, right? And you know the gospel is the same way. 
the power that Jesus loves sinners. He draws near them, not to judge them, but to deliver them. Not to punish them, but to pardon them. That's the gospel. And you know what? The gospel is unstoppable. There is nothing you can do to stop the power of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to run away from the power of gospel when God draws a circle around you. Everybody in here that's a Christian can testify. God got you, didn't he? He got you. He was after you. Like Jeff said, he has a picture in your wallet and he was pursuing you like his prodigal. And he found you and his love overwhelmed you. It overwhelmed you and it transformed you. And listen, God's power in the gospel, it's indisputable. You can't challenge it. Listen, when you see a person, their entire life has been one of perversion, just perversion and just filth. And God transforms them into just a, just a purity, a person who's greedy, who becomes radically generous, a person who is a habitual liar and becomes honest. People that are just frazzled their entire life and they're unstable and they come to Christ and there's peace and there's rest. You can't contest that. Only the power of the gospel can do that. And here's the final thing. So how in the world, how in the world does that peace get to us? Well, there's another storm. It's greater than Irma. It's greater than the storm that David saw. In fact, I would tell you this. The final storm I want to tell you about is greater even than the worldwide flood that David mentions here. Do you know what the greatest storm in the history of the world was? It was the storm of God's wrath and God's fury that came down on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem that a man named Jesus Christ was hanging on. And he took the full brunt force of that storm. Listen, Jesus didn't stop God's wrath. He didn't fight God's power and his wrath. And he certainly didn't run from it. Jesus didn't evacuate when the wrath of God was coming. You know what he did? He walked right into the eye of that storm, and it wasn't calm in this eye. God was there. Listen, God's wrath and anger and judgment came down in full force at Calvary. And the Bible says that darkness swept over the land. It was at the sixth hour. Hebrews measure time um, in a different way than we do. The sixth hour, their day starts at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would have been 12 noon, Middle East, not the time of the year that an eclipse happens, and darkness covered the land, and there was a storm. There was an earthquake. The, temples, the temple stones split in half. Graves opened up, just revealing the power that was being manifested in this play there because the Bible says that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. All the fury and the anger of God towards sin was poured out on Jesus, and he didn't run from it. He took it. He bowed his head, and he absorbed all that wrath. He swallowed it. And listen... He emerged victoriously on the other side. And because of that, my friends, we can have shalom. We can have peace. When this, when this passage ends by seeing, saying God will give strength to his people, God will give peace and blessing to his people, that is a, that's a gospel promise to us. It's not a maybe. It's not wishful thinking. This is what Jesus secured and purchased for us. Every single person in this room, this offer is held out to you. It's like when the storm of God's wrath comes, Will you be found in Christ? Will you have that peace? Do you know him? You know, when David was up in Jerusalem watching all these things, I don't think he panicked. I don't think he went and checked the palace blueprints to see if it was up to hurricane standard code, you know? I think David said, I know him. I know him. My father is at work. Look at this power. Look at how beautiful and majestic it is. Consider it. And I think David knew that power is for me. He said in Psalm 56, I think verse 7, I have it written on a board in my office. David said this, This I know that God is for me. Isn't that one of the greatest affirmations you can ever find in the Bible? 
Do you know that? Could you say that with the same confidence that David said? Or like he said in Psalm 31, God is my fortress and my life and my times are in his hand. I trust him. He can bring whatever storm he, he wants my way because listen, Jesus has already faced the greatest storm that I'll never have to face. We will never have to face God's judgment because of Jesus. And listen, because that storm has been settled, can't you, can't you endure the little storms that God brings into your life like Irma? Isn't Irma a little storm in comparison to God's anger and God's wrath and God's judgment? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. It can make you sing. In fact, uh, I, think, I think I have something from Don Green, one of the pastors that I served under in, at Grace Life in California. He said this. Check this out. The power that blows the storm keeps and blesses those who trust him. The storm has blown through. The power of God has been on display. And what's left behind in our souls? Not destruction, but peace. Amen? I got one, one more quote for you here from, from Spurgeon. I got to turn this. got to start dancing up here or something. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. Is not this a noble psalm to be sung in stormy weather? Can you sing amid the thunder? Will you be able to sing when the last thunders are let loose and Jesus judges the quick and dead? If you are a believer, the last verse is your heritage, which says God will give strength to his people. God will give, bless his people with peace. And surely that will set you singing. You know, Jonathan Edwards, is, is a, he was a great theologian in America. He was a Puritan. And before he was converted, storms terrified him. He would run from them. He would take shelter. And then he came to Christ. He came to know God. And after that, he writes in his journal. I got a quote here. I'll read them. We'll, we'll close with this, okay? Edwards wrote this in his journal when he was converted. It's a little bit archaic, the language, but check this out. He said, Scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, so to speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm and used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me... I <laughs> know, a little archaic exceedingly entertaining, which oftentimes uh, led me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural to me to sing. Isn't that beautiful? You can watch a storm and you can see the power of God thundering down and you can know that I belong to that God. That God cares about me. That God loves me. I'm loved by him. I'm known by him. I'm forgiven by him. I belong to him. I'm his child. He adopted me. He justified me. He forgave me. He cleansed me. And there's nothing that will ever be brought into my life that he is not in control of. You know, I think sometimes we can see a thunderstorm and we can get frightened. Uh, we can think the wrong things about God. And J. Oswald Chambers said, at the root of every sin is the suspicion that God doesn't love us. Isn't that true? Okay, last thing, and we're going to close with this, I promise. We get two or three of those promises, don't we? <laughs> when Sarah and I first moved to Ormond Beach after seminary, my wife loves to make friends, and she loves to run. She's been a runner as long as I've known her. Pretty avid runner. Embarrasses me, as a matter of fact. But anyway, she's built for it. I'm not. Um, she made friends with her neighbor, uh, who wasn't a believer. 
And uh, they started a kind of a running club, and they enlisted another guinea pig to go with them. And they would get up like at ungodly hours of the morning, and they would all go run together. And they did it in, in, in pairs, or they did it with three uh, so that they were safe, because it was early in the morning, it was still dark some of the time, and they would go in these abandoned neighborhoods. Well, one day, our neighbor, her name's Christy, uh, my Sarah couldn't run, and another girl named Julie couldn't run, and Christy was losing weight, she was loving it, she didn't want to get out of the, the habit, so she went by herself. She went running in the pre-dawn hours by herself, and they would run a, a 5K, which is like 3.2, I think, miles, 3.1 or 3.2 miles. And so she had ran halfway really hard. She was exhausted. She turned around, and she was about to come home. She told Sarah what happened later, and she heard the sound that no woman wants to hear when they're running in the dark by themselves alone on the deserted stretch of highway beside an empty forest. She heard footsteps. And she turned around, and sure enough, there was a man behind her. And he was not walking. He was running toward her. And he was not wearing jogging clothes or Under Armour shirt. Uh, he had work clothes on, and he just looked really creepy. And Sarah said, oh, my goodness, what did you do, Christine? And she said, Sarah, I turned back around, and I ran as hard as I have ever ran in my life. The two miles back home, and she had one of these... Uh, apps on her phone that registers how fast you run. And she ran those last two miles in six minutes each, which is like, hey, for a, for a woman, that's amazing. And she said, when I got home, I threw up, and I have not ran since. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because if we're honest, a lot of the times, that's the way we view God. We do. God's behind us. He's chasing us. He's out to get us. I'm not going to turn around, and I'm not going to slow down. And we run ourselves weary and we get exhausted and we have these wrong views and wrong ideas about God when in actuality, yeah, God is pursuing you, okay? But God is not chasing you to catch up with you and punish you and judge you. God is pursuing you out of love. He's pursuing you to invite you to his party, right? Christianity is all about a feast. It's all about a banquet. It's one of the first miracles that Jesus ever did was turning water into wine and all the feast of Israel. Jesus was the culmination of all those things. And so don't let this psalm startle you. Let this psalm just invite you uh, to just relish in God and, and His power and His love and His glory and to know that this same God who created and controls this storm loves you and is for you ultimately. And there's nothing that can ever happen that can rip you out of His hand. Amen. Isn't that good news? That's the best news in the world. Let's pray.